All right, guys, as we finish chapter 5 and made our way into chapter 6, what we did last week and we're going to do today is we continue to read about the things that Jesus intentionally did and the things that Jesus intentionally said. And, and, and these things that he did and said, which we're reading about and studying about, they reveal to us various aspects of who Jesus is and what he does for those of us who put our faith in him. Really cool things, very applicable things. And as we read through the first six verses, we read through the very first six verses of this chapter. If you remember, we, see, we saw Jesus declare himself to be the Lord, right? He made the, 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 it's a specific statement that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But we talked about how that was really a declaration of, of to be the Lord, to be the Lord of lords, um, God in the flesh. And... Um, in the remaining verses of this chapter that we're going to read and study through today, we're going to see additional aspects of Jesus. We're going to focus on him. We're going to see that he's this compassionate healer. We're going to see that. We're going to see him as the master. And we're going to lastly see him as the teacher. And as we read through um, a widely known passage of Scripture that is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, we'll, we'll take an in-depth look at Christ being our teacher and our need to submit our lives to him in that area as well. Now, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that these various aspects of Jesus, who he is and as the Lord, who he is as the compassionate healer and who he is as the master and the teacher, they can't be separated from one another. They shouldn't be separated from one another. And, and if a person chooses to put their faith in Jesus and, and who Jesus is, it's, it's an all or nothing thing. We don't come to get to pick and choose from Jesus what we want and what we don't want. In other words, a true decision to live for, a true decision, a daily decision for us to, to live for Jesus and a, and, a, and a daily decision to follow after Jesus means we must submit ourselves to all that Jesus is. Every aspect that's revealed to us. And to accept him as our Lord, to accept him as the compassionate healer of our life, to accept him as our master, and also to accept him as our teacher. It's, a, it's all inclusive. And I say this because you guys probably are aware of this as well, and maybe there's times in our own lives where we, we, we enter into this kind of place where we shouldn't be. There are, there are many people out there, as you know, who only receive Jesus in one or two ways, not, not in, or in, in certain aspects of the claims that he made. For example, they may, they may choose to receive Jesus only as a compassionate healer who can fix them up, right? We got a problem, we got a hurt. I go to Jesus to get fixed up. And we should go to Jesus to get fixed up. He is a compassionate healer. But if that's all we're coming to him for, then, then we're running short. And, and, and in addition to that, this is probably even more... Um, noticeable is that there are a lot of people in our world today who will who will say Jesus was a good teacher right and 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 in doing so they may submit their lives to his teachings I only I've heard people say I only believe in the red letters they probably never read them but they know enough to know that those are the words of Jesus and, and um, they believe that and they want Jesus as a good teacher whose, whose teaching should be followed. And, and even though these people, because of that, may have this outward form of godliness, the Bible makes it clear that their end will be destruction. Why? Because they deny Jesus in these other aspects that he reveals himself to be. They deny him as master. They deny him as their Lord. And they never fully submit their lives to him. And so I would encourage us this morning to, to not fall prey to that in our own lives. Every aspect of who Jesus has revealed himself to be to us must be received and applied to our lives. So if we'll pick back up here in verse 1, if you want to follow along, reread these first five verses and then jump into to the next set. Um, it says in verse 1, it says, Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields. And, and his disciples, they plucked the heads of the grains and ate them, rubbing them in between their hands. And some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took 
and ate the showbread, and also gave some of those with him, and gave, gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And so, verse 5, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, verse 6, it says it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he, Jesus, would heal on the Sabbath, that, it, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man who had a withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And Father, I ask again, call upon um, your presence to be here. We know that you are. I pray, God, that you would fill each person here, Lord, with understanding. God, you tell us that um, you give it to us freely when we ask. Lord, make yourself known to us. Give us a heart to receive everything that you have today. Father, that we too can go forth from this place full of courage and boldness to um, follow you, to submit our lives to you. Even in those areas, Lord, where we doubt, where we have fears, in those times where we cry out, Lord, we, we, have, we, we believe, but help, help our unbelief, Lord. Help our unbelief today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so like we talked about last week, Jesus is, is the Lord. He's the Lord. And the question we should ask is the same thing that Jesus asked Peter when, when, when he said, so what do you people say? He basically asked Peter, so am I your Lord? What do you say about me? Is he our Lord? Because he is the Lord, but he is, our, is he our Lord? And in these next verses, with that contextual understanding, we're pointed to the fact that as the Lord... Okay, that's the basis of it all, starting there. As the Lord, he's also a compassionate healer. Our Lord is a compassionate healer. And, and by this account, we, again, we see once again, I think even in a clearer way, that God is more concerned about meeting human needs than he is about protecting man-made religious ways or religious laws. And, 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 and that's a no-brainer, but we can lose sight of that when we look at the, the, the church over the, the, the centuries and, and down through the ages and even the church today where, where, where men gets into the things of God and, 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 and perverts it. But we need to remember that God's more concerned. And we, we should look at this in regards to our own lives and how God would use us into the lives of others because God is more concerned about human need and, and, and we should be as well than he is about protecting man-made religious rules or, or our own ideas of how things could go. And God's going to challenge us in that. He will challenge us in that in our day-to-day -day life when we're confronted with those who are hurting, those who are suffering, like this man here who had the withered hand. And are we going to stop? Are we going to take the time? Are we, as, as, as submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, going to follow his example and show compassion to those who are in need? And this time that we see this taking place, according to verse 6, um, at this time, Jesus chose another Sabbath day. I don't think that's by coincidence. Perhaps we'll talk about that. But another Sabbath day to illustrate this point, this point that, that, that God cares more about human needs than, than religious rules. And in doing so, Jesus says he went to the synagogue where there was a man whose right hand was withered, which meant... It meant, literally meant that the muscles in his hand had atrophied as a result of some kind of perilous or injury. And when I looked at the Greek word, not that it really is, is, is that significant, but the, the, the word that's used here for, for withered implies like, uh, also like, the, the, um, it, it says that the, <laughs> it's kind of gross, but the, the juices from the flesh had been dried up. 
and it referred to a scorching. It's very likely that this man had been injured as a result of some kind of, of fire, something to that degree. If you've ever seen a, a burn victim, um, you can imagine what that might look like now. And, and so here's this man. He's got this thing that's just not going to fix itself on its own. He's probably lived with it for a long time. And, and in this agrarian culture, we don't know what he did as, as for a living, but it would have affected him in, 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 in his abilities to, to maybe even provide for himself in many ways. The guy was in need. Now, in light of the previous Sabbath day encounter, as we look at this contextually with these Pharisees, it makes me wonder. It, it, we should wonder. We should wonder if they had purposely brought this man to this, to this um, um, synagogue um, just to see how far Jesus would take this claim that he had made, right, to be the Lord of the Sabbath. All right, if you're the Lord of the Sabbath and you're saying you can do whatever you want, you know, they're going, okay, let's, let's, let's try to set Jesus up. And, and we see that here taking place. After all, picking some grain while walking through a field in order to have something to eat was one thing in regards to their violation of their rules in regards to the Sabbath, as Jesus had previously challenged them. But healing a man on the Sabbath and claiming it to be as an act of God, God who, who we know from the very beginning set it forth that he, he and all of those whom he created should rest on the Sabbath, right? That's a whole other thing, to heal somebody on the Sabbath as an act of work, right? You, you shall not work on this day. You shall keep it holy. But even if they, even if they didn't bring this, this man, even, even if the, the, the speculation going a little too far there, maybe, if, maybe even if they didn't bring this man to Jesus, we know, we know that at the very least they were watching closely, right? It says, according to verse 7. They were, they were watching closely to see, not to see if Jesus would do this miraculous thing so they could rejoice over it, they, they, they were watching him closely to see if he would heal the man so that they might find some kind of accusation against him. What a, what a wicked, perverted heart. But when we stand in this place of condemnation, even in our own lives, like we talked about where we create this list of rules and regulations for ourselves that are apart from anything that God's placed upon us, right, so that we can be good Christians as if Christianity is a self-improvement course, which it's not, Right? But we, we burden ourselves down by these things, or we allow others to burden ourselves down by these things. We then take this place where we stop looking for the miraculous things of God and look for the works of God so that we might find judgment or, 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 or the freedoms that other people have been given in God, and, 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 and so that we might look at them in this same kind of wicked, perverted way and find fault in them so that we might accuse them of something. Now, I believe it's important to point out that Jesus could have waited a few hours until the sun went down and the Sabbath day was over, right? The, day, the Sabbath day was over when the sun went down. I don't know what time it was, but even if it had been six or seven hours, he could have, he could have waited until the sun went down to do what he was going to do, or he could even have simply taken the man aside and, and healed him in private. But, but that's not what Jesus was doing here. And he was making a point. He was going to make a point. He was making the point that God cares about us and that he cares about our needs more than he cares about man's lists of what's right and what's wrong. Jesus purposely healed this man right there in front of everyone, and by doing so, he deliberately violated one of, another one of the religious leaders' Sabbath's traditions. Now, Jesus' defense in this situation when he, when he, or Jesus' descent, previous defense when he was in the field, if you remember, it was based upon the Old Testament scriptures. He, 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 he brought forth an illustration from the Old Testament scriptures as Jesus referred these guys back to what David had done in his time of need, what we just read about. We talked about it from the book of Samuel last week. But here, if you'll see his defense in verse 9 that he spoke, this defense pointed to the very nature or the heart of God's Sabbath law. And that was lost through the rules and regulations that the Pharisees had put forth, which became a burden to the people. He pointed back to the very nature of the heart of God's Sabbath law and, and did so by asking this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? If it's a day that God has set forth, what should we do on that day? Good 
or evil. To save a life, he says, or to destroy a life. And by this, Jesus was testifying to the fact that, that God had given the law, and we talked about this in our home group last Wednesday, but God had given the law to help people, to bless people, to show his love to people, not to hurt them, not to curse them. And anytime we see God's laws and as, 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 as applied to our own lives, we have to understand that the right application that is to flow out of that is to see that it's going to be a, a loving thing, always. And if it's not, then we've, we've, we've brought it into our lives or into the lives of others in an ungodly way. Not to destroy, but to bring forth life. And in Mark's account of this event, we see that Jesus expounded on this truth further in chapter 2, verse 27, when he simply said this. He said, he said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God made it for us. And everything that God has done for us and everything that God does for us is good. Furthermore, in Matthew's account, I like this part, in Matthew's account of this event, Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of these religious leaders who were only, we know at the very, we were only looking to bring some kind of accusation against him at this time. And he said in chapter 12 of Matthew, verses 11 and 12, he said that every man in the synagogue, he, I love this reasoning because it's just he's taken away their excuses. He says every man in the synagogue, every one of them would rescue a sheep on the Sabbath if it fell into a pit. So why not rescue a man who is far more valuable than a sheep? Now the funny thing about all of this is that when the man stretched out his hand, when the man stretched out his hand that probably hadn't been stretched out, it's when he, that command to do that was miraculous in and of itself, it was withered, it was dried up, it could not have that mobility and Jesus said, stretch it out. And when he stretched it out, when, the, when, when, when Jesus spoke to him in, in, in that command in verse 10, what do we see? That it was completely restored. And, and, and you might go, why, that's, why is that funny? I think it's funny because technically Jesus performed no work. Did you think about that? He performed no work on the Sabbath. He simply spoke a few words and then the man's hand was completely restored. Yet by doing so, Jesus took away any of the claims that they thought that they might be able to have to accuse him. And Jesus healed this man without breaking even any, not even one of the Pharisees' laws, much less the law of God. Needless to say, which Jesus probably even more so, as we see, so as we see fulfilled the very law of God, the heart of God, the nature of God's command here on this day for this man by healing him. Needless to say, these men who were looking to indict Jesus to some wrongdoing, they were humiliated. They thought they had caught him. And because they left without any claims against Jesus, this is sad. It says they were filled with rage. Filled with rage. They had no thing to condemn him with. This is amazing. They were, they were so filled with rage, so much so that they, according to some of the other gospel accounts, that they, went, they then went to their enemies, the Pharisees did. A group of people, a group of men, an, an organization, a sect of Jewish people called the Herodians. The Pharisees went to the Herodians. And, and, and they were a group of Jews, the Herodians, who supported Herod. Herod who would have been appointed by the Romans as king of the Jews. And the Pharisees hated Herod because of that. And there was this group of Jews at this time who supported Herod and in his kingship. And, 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 and these guys who had such great hatred for one another, their hatred for Jesus was so much greater that they went to the Herodians to figure out how they together might destroy Jesus. Wow. And we're told that, that Jesus withdrew at this time from these religious leaders so that he might go to his, his Father in heaven through prayer. Not because he was afraid. He, he read the gospel and says Jesus withdrew for them. He left the cities. He went to the mountain, it says, back to the wilderness area where the people would follow after him. And he did so, we read here, because he wanted to be in prayer. He wanted to have some time with his Father in heaven. And in verse 12, we read it. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day... He called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, 
whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now, I think that last statement is profound in lots of ways and for lots of reasons because we know that Jesus, through prayer, chose these guys. But that last statement, as it defines Judas of Iscariot, really shows us in general, overall, that these men, as we know, whom Jesus chose, they had issues, right? Every one of them. Simon, the one first named, Simon Peter, he, he's probably the biggest knucklehead out of all these guys. He's always listed first in any of the lists of the 12 apostles. He's always first. And it's probably because he's the biggest knucklehead of all of them. And the fact that Jesus retreated to pray at a time when his enemies were out to get him, listen, that's one part of it. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like people are out to get you? I mean, not in the paranoid friend sense, but I mean, you really, people are, are out to get you. They don't, you know, people at your workplace, people in school, you know, we live in this world where if you're vulnerable, if you're weak, there's this, we, there's this getting ahead mentality. And we seek to go around and, and perhaps defending ourselves in ways that we shouldn't. We forget Psalm 27, that Bible says that the Lord will be the one to defend us. He'll be the one to bring forth our justices in the noonday. And so I think we've all been in those times where we felt vulnerable, like we're there, that, that, that people are out to, to do us harm. And, and Jesus was in this place with the Pharisees and the Herodians who were plotting now to kill him. And he'd gone to his Father in heaven at this time when his enemies were out to get him, but also at a time when he had important decisions to make to choose these twelve. And the fact that Jesus has done this this time, and we read this here as accounted by Luke, I think we're given another great example to follow when we look at the life of Jesus. Think about it. If Jesus, who is God in the flesh, needed to pray for strength and guidance in his time of need, how much more than do we? How much more than do we? And the great thing about going to God in our time of need is that God promises us in Philippians chapter 4, one of my most favorite passages of Scripture. He promises that when we make our request known to God, then the God of peace will fill our hearts and minds with a peace that surpasses all understanding. That He'll guard our hearts and minds with a peace that surpasses all understanding. And remembering that Jesus was fully God and fully man with all the same emotions, I think we often forget that, with all the same emotions, with all the same feelings that, that we have, I would suspect that he was in need of this peace that God promises, the peace of God that, that, that comes, the peace of God um, that comes from God in light of the fact that his enemies had united together against him and were not plotting to kill him. Now, another, another truth about prayer is also given to us in the book of James. I prayed about this a little bit for us when we started because in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that, that if we come to God in our time of need, when we are lacking wisdom, when we're lacking understanding, discernment, knowledge, rightly applied wisdom, right? When we don't know what to do in the situation. That we should ask for God for wisdom because He, it tells us in verse 5 of chapter 1, book of James, that He will give us wisdom. He gives wisdom to us whenever we ask for it, freely, abundantly. And without a doubt, when it, comes, when it, when it came to choosing, I think these 12 men to be His apostles, Jesus needed wisdom. And he wasn't looking at the, these guys individually for what they could offer or what kind of strengths or weaknesses he had. He didn't take applications, right? I'm sure he didn't say to, the, to all the disciples, to the multitudes that have fallen, I'm going to go up on the mountain now, uh, and if you want to be an apostle, please just take this papyrus and fill out this application, and, and I'll review it while I'm up there. I mean, Jesus knew these guys. He, didn't, he knew one was a traitor when he chose them, right? He knew. He knew. 
But more importantly than the outward things that he could view with his own senses, as, as, and he had been, being more than, than human, had greater senses than us, he still went to his Father in heaven as an example for us, as a path for us to walk on. Now, an apostle is a person, simply it means one who is sent with a commission to perform a special task. An apostle is one sent with a commission to perform a special task. And Jesus had chosen these 12 men for a very important task. And from this point on, these men would live with Jesus. They would walk with Jesus. They would follow Jesus. They would learn from Jesus so that they might be prepared and so that they might be equipped for the important job. Think about it, ultimately for the job of establishing the church after he, Jesus, had returned to his Father in heaven. Now, as we read on, we're going to learn about these 12 guys and what we think about in more detail. And what we think about them specifically, I think, who they were when Jesus had chosen them. I think when we think about them, we should be encouraged in light of what we read here. After all, they were ordinary men. And in and of themselves, they had nothing to offer. And even though we don't know what three of them did before Jesus called them, we do know that one of those three, even though we didn't know his profession, we know that he would be the betrayer. That he would betray Jesus. And out of the remaining nine, whom we do know a little more details about, we know that seven of them were fishermen. They weren't scholars. They weren't super highly educated they were fishermen. And two of these fishermen would be given a nickname by Jesus, Sons of Thunder, after they told Jesus that, that, that they, they should strike down these people who were wanting to follow Jesus. Sons of Thunder. And we know that one was a tax collector, we're told here, and, 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 and one the, the twelfth uh, only in, in, in number do I put that out. The 12th was a zealot, meaning that he had been a person in his past. He had been one who belonged to a group of, of um, fanatical Jewish patriots whose very purpose was to deliver, they believed, their, deliver Israel from the tyranny of Rome. And they, they worked to do so by every means at hand. You can, you can read historical accounts of these zealots and see what they would do. They, they, were, they were ancient terrorists. They, were, they would assassinate people in places of authority and power. Nevertheless, the, the, Jesus <laughs> prayerfully chose each one of these men. He chose them. And when you look at who they were when Jesus called them, and when we read about all the foolish things they did even after they had been called, I think we can better understand how God, who used them in awesome ways, can also then use us in awesome ways. In light of this, we should remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. It says this, tells us this, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not, not many are wise according to the flesh, and, and not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring, nothing, bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh can glory in his presence. And if we believe the Bible, we have to believe this to be true as well. And I point that out because there's so many times that, that, that you guys will come to me as, as something's been put on your heart, or, or I will come to you with a need in the church, and, and as God's put on my heart to, to invite you to step into this place where you can serve the church or serve God. And, and so often the, the things that come out of your mouths are the same things that has come out of my mouth at times that we, we know that the apostles were probably thinking about themselves also in this moment is that I can't do that. I'm weak. I don't know how. I'm not qualified. I've never done that before. And all these things were like Moses who, who, who when God called Moses, right, he's like, uh, don't send me. I can't even speak. 
I stumble in my speech. I murmur. He says, take my brother. Let me take him. Let him speak. And God is all, no, Moses, I chose you. No, Moses, I've chose you. And we have, to, we have to believe this to be true, these things. What it says is that God chooses us in our weakness and out of our, our, our deficiencies so that he may be all-sufficient through us and be glorified. Because when we believe that, then we'd be willing to take, to take these steps of faith into these areas of service that God calls us into and going, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how it's going to get done. But I will, Lord, do what you've asked me to do, even though I'm a knucklehead even though I fall short. And, and guys, truthfully, when it comes to ministry, that's the only place you can be successful is in your weakness. Because if we, bring, we, would try to do, we would try to bring forth a work of God through our flesh, that's foolish. Think about God doing a work, miraculous, wonderful, exceedingly and abundantly and greater than anything that we can ever hope and imagine, and we think that we're going to be able to bring forth this work of God because we're strong or because we're equipped, because we know how, that's foolishness. But to come to this place where we understand that, that, that God doesn't cho choose us because our, our resume, our, our application is better than everybody else's. He chooses us because we're the most foolish, as Paul said, he said, I'm, I'm the greatest of the sinners. I'm the weakest. I'm the one that's the most in need. And I think that I believe that in my heart all the time. You know, and, and, and when I look at my own life, that, that um, I, God chose me to, to be the one who gets to have this awesome honor and privilege of pastoring this church, of being a shepherd, because I'm the most foolish. I'm the most weakest and that God's placed me in this place of, uh, 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 this place where I'm, I'm utterly and ultimately completely dependent upon him to do anything good through me. But he does. He's faithful. And just like he was faithful to the 12 that he chose here to do a good work in them and through them, and we know that, that on the day of Pentecost when Peter, the, the one who's always listed first here, that when he was filled with the Holy Spirit of, of God and, and with the power that comes down from on high, he was used in a supernatural, mighty, awesome way, and words of eloquence flowed through his mouth as he led, it says in one day, 5,000 people to the Lord, to faith in Jesus. And these 12 men, it tells us about these 12 men that later on, in spite of all their failures, in spite of all their faith, uh, their lack of faith, because Jesus had this, this name for them, O ye of little faith, over and over again. In spite of all those things, it says, these men turned the world upside down. And God wants to do the same thing through us. He wants to turn the world upside down, starting in your own home in your neighborhood, in your workplace, to your extended family members. But it requires us to say, I will follow you like these 12 men had done. I will go where you send me. I will do what you will do in spite of my failures, in spite of my weaknesses. Now in verse 17 it says, and he, Jesus, he came down with them, these, these 12 men, and they stood then on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And, and literally that's, that's telling us from, 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 from as far north to south, from far east to west, this great multitude, they all had come to Jesus here at the, the seacoast, the Sea of Galilee, um, and, and, and they came to hear him, it says, and to be healed of their diseases. Again, a compassionate healer as Lord. As well as those who were tormented, it says, with unclean spirits. And, and they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. And then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, when they revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. 
Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in a like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe, verse 24, to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe, verse 26, to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And I think Jeremiah, uh, prophet Jeremiah, could testify to that. Now, these first three verses, they, they really help to set the scene, I think, um, for the teaching and preaching that Jesus did from the, the level place on the mountain. Um, I think really starting, I think, in verse 20. However, I want to remind you of a few contextual things as we, we move into this next section. Um, uh, a few contextual things that I think will help us understand the things that Jesus taught. First of all, clearly, from what we read here, as Luke describes it and wants to t- and telling us, that Jesus had become very well known at this time. He became very well known at this time. He was very well liked by the crowds of people, and they were following him wherever he went. However, Jesus had initially gone to this mountain, remember? He had gone to this mountain to be alone and to pray. And after he had prayed all night, he called these 12 men, his side of his disciples, these, these 12 as apostles, um, who, who had left all behind to follow him to this mountain where he was, and from them he chose the twelve. And right after this is when Jesus came down to the, to the level place, to, to a, a spot where he could address the crowds of people with his disciples and his apostles to where the crowds had been waiting for him, these ones who had been following after him, where they were at. And after Jesus had spent some time it says, with them being Lord and a compassionate healer, he, 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 he tell, it tells us in verse 20 that he then, right, lifted up his eyes towards his disciples, so he had spent some time with the multitudes, showing them compassion, and then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, now, I point this out because there's an importance to it. It's important to note this because it lets us know to whom Jesus is teaching at this point. The words that he's speaking, who do they apply to? And it's not just to the multitudes in general, but specifically to his disciples, to whom Jesus was preaching to and to whom these teachings that he gives us now apply to. And so by this, we see that these teachings are specifically for those who follow after Jesus, disciples of Jesus. For believers, ultimately, who have repented of their sins and entrusted their lives to Jesus. That's what this teaching is set forth to. And in understanding who this message is for, we can keep then the proper context of the message and rightly apply it, I think, to our own lives, which we need to do. And another thing to point out is, is that prior to this sermon, leading up to this point, okay, in this, in this particular, at this particular point, let me put it like this, we're seeing a shift in Jesus' ministry, Okay? We're seeing a shift in his ministry in that up to this point, prior to this point, Jesus' message, um, the, the preaching that he said he must go do, if you remember, is mainly this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was mainly the message up to this point that Jesus was speaking, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now for those, those of the crowds those of the followers who had, 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 had come to him, those who had accepted this message, his disciples, they, they were now being given a different message. And it's true in our own lives. The first message for all of us is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And once we've taken that step of faith and received what God has for us from that message, then there's other things in our lives that Jesus, that God wants to talk to us about. And here we see that shift because now the teaching, now the message is specifically about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven of which we become part of, citizens of. And this message about the kingdom of heaven can really be broken into four parts. And it can be summarized with four words. If you're taking notes, you're going to want to write these words down. Uh, The first part is in verses 20 through 26. That's what we're going to get through this morning with the time we have left. And the word here that kind of defines or identifies the, the overall meaning of what's being spoken to us is the word being. 
It's, it's a state of being. It's, 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 it's something in relationship to what a person is. The second part, part two, is in verses 27 through 36, and the word here is, is loving. So the first part of Jesus' message in regards to the kingdom of heaven is being. Are you being a part of that kingdom of heaven? Are you being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? The, 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 the second part is loving. The third part is in verses 37 through 45. We'll get to these Next week, and the word here that defines that third part of Jesus' teaching is forgiving. In part four, the last part of this Sermon on the Mount message, verses 46 through 49, and, and in, in that part, the word is obeying. Being, loving, forgiving, and obeying. And now, not to make things any more complicated, but this first part, which we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at this morning in verses 20 through 26, this first part is really divided into two sections. And it's, di- it's divided into two sections. Um, clearly, you can see the first section is these blessings, and the, and the second section are these woes. There are these contrasts that are being painted. It's a contrast for those who are and for those who are not. And, 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 and it's divided into two sections. In this first statement here in verses 20 through 23, they are what is referred to as the Beatitudes. I'm sure you guys have heard that before. And that word simply means a state of, it's a state of being. It's a state of utmost bliss. Think about that. A state, that's a good thing. Of, utmost, of uttermost bliss. I don't know for sure if I've ever experienced that in this world, an, of a state of uttermost bliss or a state of happiness. It's an extreme form of something. It's an extreme form of happiness and everything that relates to that. I don't mean just circumstantial. That's not what we're talking about. But it's in relationship to a state of being. And the fact of the matter is, is that happiness, you guys know this, happiness is ultimately that what, that what everyone is looking for. If you ask somebody, what, what's the thing that you want the most? And they'll say, oh, I would love to have a, a new whatever, or more of this, or more of that, and I'd like to win the lottery, you know, these things. And what are they ultimately saying? They don't want that thing in general. They're saying, I want something or someone who can make me happy. I want to be in this state of uttermost bliss. And what everyone is looking for is happiness. If you ask anyone what they want most in life, they're going to give us these different answers. But in essence, they will always all be saying is what they want is they want to be happy. They want to be happy. And so as we read these truths that Jesus preached to us, to his disciples, we need to understand that he's really given us the answer to true happiness. This is a really cool thing. People need to know this. What is the, the answer behind true happiness? And he, he, he says this, blessed, this word blessed, literally happy, over and over again here, happy or blessed are those who are. And then he goes into to say something. To give us um, um, a, a, a definition of it. Now, it's, it's also important to note that these beatitudes are not a list of things that are be done. This is where the word being comes into place. This is not a list of things that are to be done, Okay? Rather, they are a list of matter of facts. They are a list of a state of being, meaning when you are a disciple of Jesus, when you are a a citizen of the the kingdom of heaven, this is how you will be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus spoke of four conditions in which which people are blessed or in in, in which people are blessed are happy when they are following after him. First of all, saying, here it is. This may, these things seem contrary or a contrast to our, 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 our natural or our, 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 the, the way men, humans think. Because he says, he says um, blessed are you who are poor. Not when you are poor, but you who are poor. Again, the state, it's a state of being. It's, it's not what you do. So it's not, Jesus is not saying go out and give everything away and be poor and you'll, you'll be blessed. He's not, he's not saying blessed are you, when you're poor, he says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor. That's the first one. Blessed are you who, are, who hunger now. Not, not blessed are you when you are hungry. I'm on this 
dumb diet right now, and I'm hungry all the time. And it's not a blessing <laughs> in and of itself. Now, the end result, hopefully, will be a blessing. Um, but right? If you've been hungry, it's not a blessing. But you, you who hunger now, that's, that's a blessing. It's a state of being. How about blessed are you who weep now? Same thing, guys. We've all been brokenhearted. And in that brokenheartedness, in that time of grief, that time of sorrow, that time of suffering, that's not, there's, not, that's not a, uh, there's no happiness in that moment. But in regards to a state of being, blessed are you who weep now. And lastly, blessed are you when men hate you. I mean, like, wow, really? Poor, hungry, weeping, and hated? You're blessed. But remember, these are kingdom things. This is, a, this is a teaching about the kingdom of heaven and about the citizens who are in the kingdom of heaven. This is what we are like, specifically in regards to, to, to in, in, or let me put it this way, in each of these four statements, and this is where we, we come to understand what Jesus is speaking to us about, because in each, in each of these four statements, or along with each of these four statements, there's a clause that is added, Right? It's not the whole thing. There's a clause that is added that explains why. It's the why. Why such a person is blessed or happy in this condition of being. Specifically, a poor person is happy. Why? Because his is the kingdom of God. That's a good thing. Because his is the kingdom of God. And being a disciple of Jesus, guys, being a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is the first step. These things build on one another. Build. They build on one another. These truths. And this is the first step. Being a citizen of the kingdom of God is the first step in the process of being or in being blessed because true happiness is only found when you are a citizen of God's kingdom, when you're a member of God's family. When you know that your sins are forgiven and you're going to have eternal life in heaven. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. But the condition Jesus attached to this blessing was that the poor are the ones who are given the kingdom of heaven. And the word poor that is used here, and, 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 and this is the case in each one of these states of being that is spoken about here, in that it's in the most extreme form imaginable. Okay, And our English language really doesn't do that justice, but the translated word that we received here as poor comes from the Greek word protokos, and it describes an extreme form of poverty, someone who is beggarly. And, and certainly the disciples of Jesus at this point, right, because they, they, had, they had forsaken everything to follow Jesus. They left it all behind. They were poor. They were poor. But Jesus' explanation about their inclusion into the kingdom of God is mentioned because they were following him. Because they were following him, the one who was proclaiming. They were following the one here who was proclaiming his ability to bring them into the kingdom of God. But Jesus' explanation, um, or excuse me, um, and, and they, were, they, were, they were staking these guys' These disciples, specifically even more so the apostles, they were betting everything. They were staking everything um, they had on the fact that Jesus was now telling them the truth. That if you follow me, this is going to be what will be yours. That I am the Son of God. That I am the Messiah. They were betting everything. Remember Peter, he left his boats behind. Matthew left the tax collector's table behind. They all left their livelihood behind. Their lives on this earth behind to follow after Jesus. And in light of this, we can conclude that Jesus' words were not a promise that every, every poor person has a part in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, his words were a statement of fact for his followers. His words here were a statement of fact for his followers. And their forsaking of the things of this life was due to the fact that they realized that they were poor, that they had realized that they were in need. They saw Jesus, remember? Peter, when he, when he realized who Jesus was, he said, he said depart. I'm, I'm a sinful man. He realized 
that he was poor, that he was in need. And in light of this, we can see that Jesus' statement, it goes well beyond the physical, right? Not just their physical poverty that they were probably beginning to experience at this time, but it was a spiritual poverty. And we get a clear picture of this from Matthew's account where Jesus specifically said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a completion to this statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And a person who is poor in spirit, they stand before God with no illusions of self-righteousness, no illusions of self-sufficiency. They see themselves for what they truly are. Someone who is in need of a Savior. Bottom line. I love the prophet Isaiah speak to this because he gives us an example of this, this attitude, this state of being. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, Isaiah says this. He says, It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. And you talk about angels. These get, the seraphim, they're like the, the angel of the angel. I mean, these guys are, these guys are bad news. I mean, they're tough. They're, they, you don't want to see a seraphim. And he said, each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And, 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 and one cried out to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voices of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people unclean lips. For why, he says, how does he realize this? He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He beheld God in his glory. And Isaiah, standing before the throne of God, before the Lord, the creator of all things, he saw himself in light of, or literally, more importantly, in contrast to the glory of God. And in that moment, he, Isaiah, understood his beggarly spiritual condition that he was poor in spirit. In the book of Revelation, Jesus spoke a warning to the church of the Laodiceans. You guys remember it? The lukewarm church, the one that Jesus said that they were in danger of judgment of being spewed out because why they had lost sight of the fact that they were poor in spirit. And Jesus said to them, he said to the angel of the church of Laodiceans in chapter 3, he said, these things right, says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. He says, I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither, neither cold nor hot, he says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And do you not know, Jesus said, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked? So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see blind. So guys, a person who is poor in spirit is someone who understands that they are spiritually bankrupt. And when you understand that you're spiritually bankrupt, and that you're in need of a Savior, you'll be happy. There will be the state of uttermost bliss if you can live in that place, even this side of eternity, because happiness is being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Happiness, the state of blessedness, is being, again, the word being, a citizen of the kingdom of God, not being a king or a queen in this life. Right? but being a citizen in the kingdom of God. Now, the next two Beatitudes, oh my gosh, are different from the first two in that they will speak of a future fulfillment. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Okay, they speak of a future fulfillment. In verse 21, if you look there, it's really telling us that the one who is hungry will, will the one who is hungry now will be filled or satisfied, and the one who weeps now will laugh, speaking of, uh, of some things in regards to the future. And we know that the apostles whom Jesus chose um, these, these, these faithful disciples who were following after him and who were hearing Jesus speak at this time, we know, right? We know the end of their story. They're going to suffer. They're going to be persecuted for following after Jesus. And as a result, they would hunger. As a result, they would weep. But because they had chosen to follow Jesus in this life, there would be this vindication in their life overall and the life to, in life to come they would be vindicated for the things that happened to him here. 
as a result of following after Jesus. And, and, and such is the case with all of us who sacrifice and suffer in this life for Jesus' sake. Jesus said that as a result of choosing after following after him. However, as is with the, is with the first beatitude, which, which spoke into the spiritual and not the physical, we see that the same is true with these two additional beatitudes. And in Matthew's account, we're told that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. And this hunger for righteousness is, and this thirsting for righteousness is pointing us to the fact that, that a believer in Jesus who has been given a new nature like we have, we also receive a new appetite. With the new nature, with the new person that we've become, we also receive a new appetite. We hunger for new things. It's an appetite for righteousness. And the Greek word that is used here is the same for hunger, and like I said, and then it's used in the most extreme verb, verb form. And, 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 and when it's used in this context, it literally gives us a person who is so hungry that they're starving to death. And it points us to this painful feeling of want. In other words, it's a feeling of hunger that is present, is present for the sense of survival. Not like when your, your, your kid comes home from school and, I'm starving to death. There's nothing in the refrigerator to eat. You know, it's not that. I mean, it's, just, it's like someone who has just the skin and bone and they're, they're dying because they're so hungry. Deb, if you and the worship team want to come up, I'm going to wrap it up. This is the truth is, guys, everyone has an appetite that they're trying to satisfy. Everyone, in regards to spiritual things. Every one of us has an appetite. Everyone in the world has an appetite that they're trying to satisfy. And the world tells us that we should fulfill that appetite, that we should seek to satisfy that appetite with the things of this world in order to quench the appetites that we have. Yet in trying to feel the desires or the feelings that we have, um, which, which, which we're told is ultimately the lust of the flesh, Right? The lust of the eyes and the pride of life, they all, they all fall into one of those three categories. In, in, in an attempt to fill those things with the things of this life that can't satisfy, all that is left is a more unquenchable desire for something that doesn't fulfill. A thirst for more, a hunger for more, more of, of what will never satisfy. And the paradox to this is that, is that the Bible teaches us that denying the desires of our flesh and denying the, the things of this life in order to satisfy the new appetite that we've been given, a, a, an appetite, a desire for righteousness, which literally is, is putting Jesus on our plate and taking him in and following after him as we follow his example and obey his word is the only thing that will quench this appetite. And when we have had our appetite satisfied, you know what there is? In this life and also in the life to come, there's laughter. There's laughter. I'm going to be completely honest. In this diet, my wife has told me, you've been grumpy. <laughs> I've not been satisfied physically because of the food. But you know what? When we experience the satisfaction that goes beyond this life, guys, there's laughter, there's joy, there's peace, there's goodness. In all of it, and Jesus said, he said, he said this, is, this is where true peace and joy is found, in being satisfied by him. And Jesus said, he said, this is why he said, I'm the bread of life, and he comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You'll be satisfied. And so this appetite for righteousness is a desire, guys, for God's way and not for our sinful ways. It's a desire for him who is righteous. That's what it's more about. It's not just about the things that he can give us or the things that he does for us. It's about an appetite, having an appetite for him. An appetite for him who is righteous. A desire for the relationship that we now have with Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, and, and, I, and I know it's true for you guys as well, that my appetite has changed now that I've come to believe in Jesus and follow after him. And as a result of my relationship with him, you know what I want? I want to be in church. I do. Not before. I don't want to have nothing to do with church or church people. You know what I want to do? I want to read my Bible. A new appetite. I want to tell others about Jesus, who is the Christ and the Savior of the world. And I want to hang out with those who also have a hunger for righteousness because this is where my hunger and thirst is satisfied. This is where I find laughter and joy. Guys, we can praise God this morning because we've been given a new appetite for him. 
and he has satisfied that hunger that the world could not quench. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for bringing us together in you. Thank you, God, for the blessings that you've poured out into our lives as you have changed us and brought us into your kingdom, given us a new citizenship. Father, I pray that you would be glorified as we see ourselves in light of who you are and the contrast of who you are and remember what you have saved us from and what you have saved us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you guys stand?